Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is internationally renowned sports author Roland Lazenby. If there were a wing in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, reserved for basketball writers, Mr. Lazenby would and should be an inductee in very high standing. Roland has written more than 60 books covering NBA and college basketball and football. In 2014, Roland released his epic biography of Michael Jordan titled Michael Jordan, The Life, which instantly became and remains an international bestseller which has been translated into a wide array of languages. Two years later, Roland followed up his magnum opus with another magnum opus, Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant, which has also become an international bestseller that too is being translated and released in a wide array of languages. Tonight, we will discuss his latest masterpiece, which is just being released, Magic, his much-anticipated biography of Lakers legend Irving Magic Johnson. Roland, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks much, Matt. Yeah. I'd like to start off by asking you, how difficult was it in securing Magic Johnson's cooperation while you were working on this bio? Well, at first, it seemed almost too easy to be true. Um, I I approached uh, Lon Rosen, Magic's longtime friend and agent, in 2019 uh, about, actually late 2018, about Magic getting involved. And um, he said, well, it's going to take a long time. Uh, Magic takes a while making up his mind, and he did. He took about five weeks before I was notified that he would do it. And so um, I set up working, interviewing all kinds of people. Uh, There was a tentative plan that he would be available later in the year in 2019. And in September, it was finally decided I would go to L.A. and interview him. And, of course, I had interviewed uh, Magic off and on over the years. You know, he's a an easygoing guy in terms of interviews, often on the NBA's all-interview team over his career. But when I got out to L.A., I spent a week sitting in my hotel room waiting for his call. <laughs> and he um, he had gotten cold feet. You know, Lon Rosen was sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, promising this and that and it didn't happen and I, I later discovered magic wasn't even in la when they allowed me to travel out there and wait so um, i eventually realized as i got deeper and deeper into the project he was too much of a control freak Ooh to uh, really, you know, when I looked at the record, his siblings, even his family members, have never really been quoted very much. And it's because he doesn't want them. I I remember talking to his mother at the All-Star Game in Orlando in 1992, and she was telling me this story about him as a little boy. First day of school, all the other kids are rowdy, and first-year teacher, he got up, told them all to be quiet, get in their seats, and behave. And uh, the teacher had told his mother this, and I, I, I 
I uh, told him about it. He said, she shouldn't be telling you my secrets. And it wasn't the, the fun, happy magic saying that. And uh, beneath that veneer of that smile, there, I, I sort of noticed that the tightness around the corners of his eyes a lot. Mm. He uh, He's a very, very tough control freak, and that's why he was who he was, why he was a great point guard, why he was the tall boy who dared to triple. Okay, you talk about being a point guard. Do you consider Johnson to be the greatest point guard in NBA history? You know, that's a very big statement. I consider him to be the most revolutionary. And he, you know, I think in a lot of ways he had the greatest heart. I know that Jerry West thought, and originally Jerry wasn't sure he could play in the NBA when Magic was coming out of college. Jerry West being the great Lakers star who went on to become the team's GM and yeah. sort of a guru in terms of personnel. But um, his um, his play was fabulous. You know, there are other great point guards. But his thing was the no-look pass. And he ran a fast break. Um, unlike just about every other point guard, obviously Cousy, Bob Cousy, was a great running point guard. But even Red Auerbach, the, the great Celtic coach and later president, said, you know, the only person better than Cousy was Magic. Okay. Now, you say he was revolutionary as a point guard. You say you talked about the no-look pass. That was one of his inventions. In what other ways was he revolutionary to the position? Well, he was just a, a almost 6'9", just a hair short of 6'9". And he was basically considered a big man. Mm. And, of course, the game was very different back when he came along. Big, big men had been allowed into the game in the early 1940s. George Mike and Bob Curlin, guys like that. But there really wasn't the thought that a big guy could dribble. And the coaches were, I mean, had their determination set against it. Mm. And the magic just came in, and he controlled everybody. He controlled every game. You, you, you know, one of his teammates, uh, Dale Beard, his his dear friend, said, "You couldn't play your own game. You had to play the way Magic wanted you to play, mm. or you were not going to get on the floor." Because magic dictated everything, and he did virtually his entire career. Wow. Where did magic get his effervescence, you know, his passion for life and play? Where did that come from? Well, you know, he says a lot of it came from his mother. She was, in, in a lot of ways, obviously possessed of a fabulous smile. And she could get going and be effervescent like Irvin and really just talk away. But she also was possessed of a, a fundamental silence. I, I Jerry West, in, in looking at everything that magic was, said that obviously there was extra dust sprinkled on this kid at birth 
And you know, uh, the the day he was born was this. There was this huge electrical storm in Lansing that knocked out a massive transformer. You know, maybe it happened there. There was a story on the front page of the Lansing Journal that day, August 1959, that there was a front page story about a chicken being born with three hearts. So maybe it was a little voodoo or some of the occult. It's hard to really know where all of his gifts came from. It's like that Mary Renault title, Fire from Heaven, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. Exactly, Matt. Did the Lakers all? I, I mean, did the Lakers always have Johnson on their radar when it came time to draft him? I mean, was he? What did they? Was he always on the lookout for him? Um, no. Uh, you know, Jerry West. I was interviewing him in his hotel room in Dallas in 1990. He was there during the NCAA tournament in March that year, scouting, and Jerry was always scouting. You talk about. Um, You know, um, he was a guy who just had such an eye for talent. Uh, The great Jim Murray said Jerry West could spot talent through the window of a moving train. (laughs) But but when you uh, when you look at it, and Jerry admitted to me in, in my conversations with him, he had no idea. Nobody, none of the basketball intelligentsia in those days, really thought that he could make it in pro basketball. His dribble was really high. He was not possessed of a, you know, a great outside shot. He obviously did what he did very well, but everybody from Dr. Jack Ramsey to Jerry West, the Billy Packer and all those guys on that great college basketball uh, team, um, broadcasting team everyone you know later said we had no idea he could do what he was going to do jerry west told me uh, a statement that i've often remembered and i always sort of use it in my own uh, thoughts about talent but he said you know you can see what people can do on the floor the thing you cannot do is read their hearts. Mm. You really don't know what they have inside of them. And when I thought about that and how unusual Magic was as a player, uh, in a lot of ways you could make the the, uh, case that, you know, basketball, particularly pro basketball, is a game of some really big hearts. Yeah. You, you could just about make the case that Magic had the biggest heart in the entire history of the game. I, that's a, you know, that's sort of impossible to quantify, but yeah, something. Uh, it, it it really is a mystery how he was able to do everything he did and control everything. I mean, he didn't just control the action on the floor. He controlled uh, everybody from the ushers in the arena, the ball boys. Everybody was on Magic Johnson's string. The media, everybody was just infatuated with him. In my personal opinion, I know in Bill Simmons' massive book, you know, his basketball abstract, he he, he talked about the what-if scenarios. He always put, 
his number one what-if scenario. What happens if Portland had drafted Michael Jordan instead of taking Sam Bowie? I think I have a greater what-if scenario, and I'm a little disappointed no one has ever really explored this. What would have happened? People don't realize there was a coin flip to see who was going to draft Magic Johnson. It was either going to be the Bulls or the Lakers, and of course, we all know the Lakers won that coin flip, and they got him. But what would have happened if the Bulls had won the coin flip and gotten Magic Johnson? I mean, how, how much would NBA history have changed if they had Magic instead of the Lakers? I mean, when I ponder the, the alternate scenarios, I mean, it would have been just almost cataclysmic, you know, how the ch history would have been changed. Have you ever thought about that yourself when you were doing the research for this book? Oh, yes, and I wrote about it. Uh, Beautiful. And, you know, it's uh, it's the, the whole history of the league flipped on that coin flip. Yeah. When you think, and of course, George Andrews, uh, the Chicago lawyer, who was basically Magic's agent at the time and for the first eight years of his career, said that in, in so many ways, this Michigan kid, Magic, wanted to go to the Bulls when it became clear it was a coin flip. Artis Gilmore was the center for the Bulls at that time. Yeah. He was still in his prime and, you know, it was just so big and strong and would have been perfect, uh, Magic thought to play with. Meanwhile, Kareem and the Lakers, were they, they weren't drawing well. He was this brooding giant. They weren't sure how it was going to work. Yeah. And when you think about all the things that would have flipped, certainly the Bulls probably wouldn't have been in the situation where they were uh, in place to, to get Michael Jordan. Yeah. Um, just a few years later. And, of course, they would have begun winning. And yeah. uh, Magic first went to L.A. with the idea that he would play a couple years there and then he could head back home to play for either the Bulls or the Pistons. And, he, he, he you know, when he got to L.A., he uh, Bill Sharman, the Lakers GM at the time, took him over to Jerry Buss's house and Jeannie uh, Buss, uh, Jerry's daughter, who now runs the team, yeah. opened the door. She was in her late teens, and there there was Magic, and they came in, and Magic almost immediately told her, hey, uh, you know, I'll be here a couple of years, but I'm, I'm going to head back home. And her father was upstairs changing clothes, and she ran upstairs and and told Jerry Buss, Magic says he's only going to be here two years. Jerry said, that's not going to happen. When he gets to L.A. and sees all the beautiful women, yep. all of the wonderful things about living here, yep. and we make him a Laker. And Jerry, of course, it just bought the team. Yep. And, and so that was, uh, and he obviously understood he was going to have magic. And magic changed Jerry Buss's life. He, I, I mean, yeah. Jerry Buss fell head over heels with magic. He gave Magic Johnson unprecedented power yep. as a as a rookie, it it was. Uh, you could say today we have the age of great player power. Yeah. There are players that wield immense power in the NBA, and but but Magic was really the first. 
He set that trend. He had so much power. There wasn't anything Jerry Buss would not do for Magic Johnson. Okay, which dovetails into our next question. And when Paul Westhead was fired in 1981, the media placed the blame on Magic. Was Magic the driver behind Westhead's firing, or was it the opposite? Was he made the whipping boy by the Lakers front office? What did your research tell you? That was magic, pure and simple. Jerry Buss wasn't. Uh, they had to make up the, the the PR mechanism of the Lakers. Had to make up this thing that Jerry was planning to fire him anyway. None of that is borne out by the facts. They had a press conference, and Jerry Buss was trying to announce that that Jerry West was going to replace Paul Westhead. And uh, obviously that wasn't the case. Jerry uh, countermanded the owner right in the press conference, said it was going to be Pat Riley. But the thing is, it was really about the chemistry issues on the team. And Kareem was this great weapon. And Magic Johnson, for all of his talent, Teams weren't scheming to stop Magic Johnson. I mean, they did, but Kareem was that figure. But what had happened, though, with the rise of Michael Cooper as a finisher and and uh, Jamal Wilkes was on that early Lakers team, they were very quickly a running team. And those guys loved to run. They had Norm Nixon. It was a team with two-point guards. Norm Nixon, who had been just a hellacious point guard for two years in the league, you know, assists, scoring, he he was flashy, and he was called Mr. Big in the locker room. You know, he had all this leadership. It was his locker room. But nobody messed with the Sphinx-like Kareem. Mm. And so um, the Lakers had some trouble. And every coach in his right mind in that era would have done nothing but build everything around Kareem. Mm. Westhead was one of the, the mad scientists uh, in basketball of the running game. He's the guy, he had coached at LaSalle, and he had this almost 6'10", Philadelphia kid, Joe Jellybean Bryant, who played like magic, Kobe's dad, and Westhead turned him loose. But the Lakers had discovered in their second year, uh, you know, Kareem really, in so many ways, led them to the first championship with these monster games against the Philadelphia 76ers. But then he he twisted his ankle. Uh, Of course, history shows Magic came in in game six, had 42 points, uh, all those rebounds and assists. He went crazy in that game. But Kareem was the guy who got him there. And they, the next season, they struggled. Were, were they a running team? Were they a half-court team with the great Kareem? Yeah. The answer, of course, is that they were both. But they, they didn't know that. And those guys, Magic and, and those guys, even had little match matchbooks printed up that said, Trade Kareem. 
and this was not really publicly known at the time. Jeez. But they would be in the airports, and they would they would get them out because they smoked some in those days. And they'd smoke their cigarettes in the airport, yeah. and they flash those trade Korean covers. All Westhead was doing was trying to put in a half court offense that they would have in the playoffs when the action slowed, and they could then go to their great weapon, Kareem. And Kareem was really upset over Magic getting Westhead fired by announcing that he wanted Jerry Buss to trade him. Magic knew good and well. Jerry Buss loved him. Yeah. By, the, by the middle of that um, third season, Jerry Buss was, I mean, he was getting ready to give Magic this monster contract. Yeah. The negotiations were a joke. He dumped all this money. What was then a lot of money? A $25 million contract. Nobody had heard of anything like that. Jerry Buss was just berserker over his magic. Yeah. Uh, and, and so Magic had this power. He said, you might as well trade me. I'm not playing anymore with this guy. They had had an argument over some stuff, but basically it was about Westhead trying to put in more of a half-court offense so that they would be ready to really deploy it in the playoffs. And, man, he was a championship coach, and his butt got fired in a blink. It was a very quick thing. Yeah. He got fired. The coach, Paul West, had got fired in a, uh, after a six-game. They were on a six-game winning streak. Yep. And, and Cooper, Michael Cooper would be asking about it and said, yeah, but we weren't winning the right way. Mm. And, of course... You know, the truth was Pat Riley, who was not, and Jerry Buss didn't want Pat Riley to even be the assistant coach to Paul Westhead. But Pat Riley, as time would prove, probably understood the emotional levels of NBA players as well as any coach. And he, he, like Jerry Buss, empowered magic. He also knew how to keep Kareem engaged, Riley did, but he empowered magic. Okay. So let's get more into that relationship between uh, Ma uh, Magic Johnson and Pat Riley. How it began, okay, so Pat Riley empowered Magic, but how did the relationship evolve as as time passed and the Lakers begin winning championships? Did it get better or did it, did it get worse? I mean, what was, describe the, the status of the relationship between the well, two. It was, um, it was a meeting of two great control freaks. Mm. Um, Magic was this incredible control freak. Mm -hmm. And Riley was this guy who ceded more power to Magic, but he became a maniac over the years in in really sort of taking control of the team's emotional level at times. But largely, as Riley was known to say, I do what he tells me. And mm. referring to Magic. And Magic didn't like anybody messing with his mojo, with the ball, with the game, with the rhythm and the pace in which he played it. He envisioned that that fast-moving game. He made it happen first with his great rebounding. He could peel a ball off the board, head up floor. And, I, I mean, the biggest problem for teammates 
was making sure they were aware because their heads taken off. Mm -hmm. That was true at, at every level, mm -hmm. high school, college, and pros. But but Magic just had this great ability for running a fast break and finishing it with a beautiful no-look pass. The fans in L.A., it was a sleepy place, and he made it a, a show. And I mean, it was suddenly basketball became a big deal, not just in L.A., but it became a really big deal there. People came to the games, they dressed up. Yeah. There'd always been the Hollywood crowd around the Lakers, but Hollywood flocked to the Lakers once Magic got going. You had to be at those games. Yeah. If you were an actor or producer, you had to be seen because it was the happening thing. Yeah. Among his Laker teammates, who do you think was closest to Magic when it came to camaraderie, you know, friendship and all that? Anyone come to mind? Well, I, you know, it's different. I think that um, Magic and Michael Cooper really played off of each other emotionally. Mm. And it was very big. But there were, I mean, Magic would also just order Cooper around, you know, like, Shut the hell up, Coop. Uh, end your interview. We want to get out of here in a locker room. There were the you know, and he, he could just make Coop look like a little boy sometimes in that regard. And Coop would be deferential. But they, in the course of a game and magic, you know, is slapping fives. And he brought all of this emotion of the game. But Coop was right there uh, making the emotion almost like a ping pong match between them. And they would go back and forth to see each other. And it wasn't really what we'd call a literal relationship in a sense that, you know, they were just really best buds sharing everything. Okay. But they were very close. It was one of the Coop was one of the three amigos in those early years, along with Norm Nixon and Magic. But Magic just really sort of ruled everybody. Okay. What? What is? Who is the real Irvin Johnson? Now you talked about being a control freak. Were there other asp facets of his personality that you uncovered when you were doing this thing? What? Who is the real Irvin Johnson, in your view? Well, you know, he um, he really had this vast emotional intelligence. He had a human gift. There's no question. Hmm. I mean, story after story about just the phenomenal ability to remember names, to engage people, to engage their families. And these are Lakers employees. These are, you know, they played in the Great Western Forum in those days. And um, the ushers, everybody in the building was just on his stream. You know, the ball boy uh, needs a, a ride to the prom and suddenly Magic's got in the keys to the Mercedes or it was just always something. And he had that ability and he loved to engage people. And it wasn't like, it wasn't fake. It, it really was his, his desire. And it would be unimportant teammates that, you know, he would go out of his way for. And then of course, the, 
the thing that had really begun back in Lansing while I was at Michigan State, he just overrun by the female population wherever <laughs> he went. And it yeah. was ridiculous. You know, yeah. after he got Paul Westhead fired, yeah. his high school coaches knew he was really down. He was getting, all of a sudden, this guy that everybody loved was getting booed. This this black superstar gets his white coach fired. Mm. And it was ugly, and it went on for a, a long time. And, uh, you know, a couple of months in, he was Early in the 1982 season, he was visiting in, uh, uh, he was playing in Chicago, and his high school coaches and the guy was sort of uh, his um, stepfather, not really a stepfather, but a um sort of a father figure to him. The the important people from Lansing came down to Chicago. They stayed in the same hotel with the Lakers. They went to the game. He was getting booed mercilessly by the fans in Chicago, and that hadn't happened. Everywhere he went, he had been loved, and the script had flipped. And they they went out to dinner with him after the game, and he had the the table all arranged for them at this restaurant. He determined where every one of those coaches was going to sit at the table. Uh, everything was arranged just the way Magic wanted it. And they had this wonderful visit with him, and they were staying in the same hotel. And they uh, and they were just marvelled. But you know, they'd been dealing with him for years. They knew he was out to control everything. Yeah. And so they get back to the hotel, and I mean, the place is jam packed with women. <laughs> it's unbelievable. They're, they're thick up in the hallways around the players' rooms. Yeah. Pete Newell in an interview said, "You just could not believe every stop on the NBA circuit. It was just." unbelievable yeah. the number of women there and the coaches were going Irvin who are all these women what are they doing here are these all prostitutes and, and Johnson told him said some of them are but some of them are professional women it's just they all want to be here to get with a player <laughs> and later when he announced he was HIV the coaches thought back to that night in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And they said, you know, and and I think it probably, he was so unpopular at the firing of Westhead, I think it it at least bears some thought that those women provided, you know, they really got the whole thing going in some ways with all the consolation. But George Andrews, his lawyer, said women, everywhere he went, they were bribing the bellhops uh, to be in his room and to be sitting in his bed naked when he checked in. (laughs) And George Andrews saw it firsthand as his lawyer. They'd go into the room to discuss business once he arrived, and there'd be some woman, or they'd be knocking at the door, and George would say, Urban, should should I leave? And, And... Johnson would say, no, if they want it, they'll come back, and they always do. Right. And so it, it was pretty uh, amazing. Wow. 
After the Wilt Chamberlain-Bill Russell rivalry, probably the greatest rivalry in NBA history, what, how much, let's talk about the Larry Bird-Magic Johnson rivalry. How much of it was real and how much of it was media hype? Oh, I think the media hype came later. I think the rivalry was real from the start because Bird, you know, rose up as this cultural hero. Yeah. Larry wasn't trying to be the great white hope, but he certainly, you know, fit that role. And, uh, and you know, I know that, that Russell and Wilt were a great rivalry. They didn't popularize basketball. The way that the Larry Magic rivalry did, yeah, and no, it was it was you know it was mostly hatred, mm. uh, particularly on Magic's part early on. It would it would it would change tenor over time, yeah, but it would take a while, and certain things would happen. You know, they made the, they made that sh uh, sneaker commercial for Converse. And that loosened some things up, but it 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 was uh, really um, it started in in college, obviously yeah. with the most watched game. But Larry and Magic and their rivalry popularized basketball in a way that delivered it. Yeah, it delivered the sport, and nobody had managed to do that. There was, and that. That laid the emotional foundation. When you think about this, yeah. that laid the emotional foundation, which is, uh, it, you know, the thing that basketball had to gain recognition for was the emotion. I have to tell you, I have a son-in-law who's wrapping up a Ph.D. at Harvard, and he, was, he and my daughter... Uh, and their family, they went to Japan for a year. He was on a research grant. Yeah. And we went over to see them. And he was over there, and, and I got a revelation just watching him work. He sent some photos back from a samurai graveyard from like the 6th century. He was up one morning down near the coast, and there was this eerie, foggy, misty day around this samurai graveyard, diffused light, just these beautiful photographs. And I was thinking, man, humans glorify the warrior culture. Mm. And, and, and the thing that is so amazing when you look at American history, and you look at the character assassination of black males, you look at the fear that they inspire, the hatred that has been laid down over centuries. Yeah. And you take this chapter of the 1980s, here's uh, Larry and Magic, and then here comes Michael, and then boom, here's the 90s and his kid Kobe Bryant. But what, what has happened, it seems to me, is that the warrior culture has embraced these black American and Bird too, these these very top black American basketball players, and suddenly black males, uh, for a variety of reasons, are now appreciated because of all their many splendid talents. It's not basketball, it's not music, it's everything. Yeah, they're talented in so many ways. Uh, but I'm only saying this about basketball. 
Michael Jordan, and particularly Kobe Bryant, they became, and I've seen this with suddenly this global market translating my books and people in all these languages just gobbling up everything they can get on Jordan and Kobe. But these figures became metaphors for warriors. They are the modern metaphor for warriors. They don't pay kids with swords, they, you know, it's not that the you know that real fearsome warriors of the past, but they are lionized all over the globe, and that is a profound and important transformation in my mind. Really opens the door for whatever excellence black males want to establish in any field. When you were writing Magic, what was the most fascinating, obscure fact you discovered about Irvin Johnson, and what was the biggest surprise you uncovered during your research? Well, I always go for deep background. I want to know their families. Um, I think it's particularly important that we really provide all the historical context we can to the lives and the families of these stars. And, you know, it's really sort of uh, creates a schizophrenic book. I'm telling the history stories and the background. Jerry West, when I did the book for him, on him for ESPN, I went away. I was able to get back in his history. But, you know, it's very difficult to get back into the history of black families with, with the slavery and sharecropping and racism, but the data mining available in searching today. Yeah. It was amazing. And I was able to trace Magic Johnson's family to his two third great grandfathers in the 1830s on the plantation of this very powerful family in North Carolina that owned plantations in Florida and Mississippi and these were substantially powerful people. And the story that emerged there, you know, I, I, I took a black history course in college. We're fighting our, we're clawing each other's eyes out in, the, in this country today yeah. over the teaching or mentioning of black history, yep. like it's creating some kind of harm for people. It makes us all stronger to know this stuff. But the world I found in the 1830s in North Carolina taught me more about what times were like then. And I mean, there's just the amazing amount of documentation. And I think the concept we really haven't come to terms with is white fear. Mm. And white fear has been prevalent. It, it has it has been like a, a an elixir that leaves people drunk with rage and, yeah. uh, and has gone on forever in this country. And politicians of every ilk have found a way to ignite the passions and the anger of the electorate to get their votes. We're seeing it again today. Yep. And it, it is it is easily, in my mind, one of the greatest problems in America. We're so eaten up with racial sickness that we can't even 
conduct our own business affairs anymore. We're, and, and it's been that way. I mean, the things that we've done to, to prostitute ourselves over racial concerns are just ridiculous. But that world opens that up and it lays it bare. And I, 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 I was stunned at the world I found there. Yeah. One of the most heart-stopping moments in NBA history was when Magic Johnson announced to the world that he was HIV positive. Where were you personally, and what were you doing when you when you heard that when he made the announcement? Where were you at the time? Well, I, you know, I was uh, getting ready. To, I, I played a lot to pick up basketball in my life, and I was back in my home in Roanoke, Virginia, when the new I had a little Gold Star uh, color TV set on there and I was getting ready to go out and play basketball and that news hit like uh, it was amazing yeah and uh, you know it 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 floored me more importantly what it did to Kobe Bryant and his family they were in Europe magic was jelly bean Bryant Kobe's dad just idolized Magic Johnson and and wanted to be that tall player who was given the power to play as he wanted. And that never happened for Jelly Bean. But Jelly Bean had played eight years in the NBA and then eight years in Europe. And when Magic announced it was like some deity in, in the Bryant world yeah. had had fallen. And they packed up their lives immediately and came home to the United States. It was uh, it was that powerful for that family. Yeah, yeah. If Magic had not become HIV positive, how much longer do you think his NBA career would have been? Do you think he would have been still playing when Kobe when Shaq was acquired, you know, from the Orlando Magic, and when Kobe was drafted by the Lakers? I mean, did you ever discuss that with Magic? How much longer do you think he could have lasted had he not been well, HIV? You know, Kobe was drafted in 96. Magic returned and played that season. Okay. So he, he easily, you know, and he, Magic, people don't realize, Magic created his own team and traveled the globe. He was, in the wake of the Dream Team Olympics in 92, the world suddenly had this great passion for American basketball. Yeah. And Magic Johnson made part of his fortune with the Magic Johnson All-Stars, the team that traveled everywhere. He took those guys around in Learjets. He paid them well, but he was all over their case. He was a very demanding guy. Mm. And so he he had a career. It just wasn't in the NBA, but he would travel all over Europe. There was never any great concern about HIV, not like the craziness that was America. Yeah. What is his med what is Magic's medical status as today? I mean, what treatments and medications does he use to keep his HIV under control? Well, well, they uh, you know right away Jerry Buss was just distraught. You know, he had uh, he and Magic had had this extracurricular life. They were in the mm -hmm. clubs. They were seen everywhere. Yep. Jerry Buss. Some of it was just. For a show, but he he was he idolized Hugh Hefner of Playboy magazine, and that that whole L.A. club scene. Jerry Buss was 
in his 40s with a major comb over, but he was out there. Uh, and he had a, a street team to acquire. He only wanted to date 18, 19, 20-year-old women. <laughs> and he had a street team to acquire them and, and a Chinese bag man to pay them off. Uh, it was bizarre. Me Too would have fried Jerry Buss at the Village Square for all of what he did. And when Magic ended up HIV positive, and I asked Jerry about it at the, uh, just a few months after it happened. He said, I had no idea the level of activity Magic was doing. But Jerry was inconsolable. He was distraught yeah. over all of it. Yeah. And he got Magic the best doctors, Dr. David Ho. And, you know, they got him on the right medicine and Magic. You know, just made it his mission. He considered it a calling from God. And, uh, you know, in 2002, Jerry Buss told LA Times Magazine, he said, apparently he's made up his mind he's no longer HIV positive. And, and you know, the, the whole idea is um, they have to really sort of get an idea of how close was uh, a person diagnosed as HIV positive? Um, uh, how close was it to the infection? If, for example, if you were infected and you didn't know about it for years, you're probably going to die. Yeah. But if you were infected and suddenly was caught in a blood test like it was with magic, and you've got that medicine that, that changed things, and, and you did everything the doctors told you, as Magic did, and I mean, he, he was just obsessed with it. There are people who are those long-term survivors, uh, and that apparently, now there always are the, the opinions of people that Magic was misdiagnosed, but he was correctly diagnosed. He was tested and tested and tested again. Yeah. And so he, he was HIV positive. It just never developed into full-blown AIDS. Okay. Roland, okay, you just come out with this magnificent op opus here. Do you have any idea what, what your next book project might be? Any inkling right now, or you just want to rest, rest for a bit? No, I, um, I have several projects in development, and I had a... Uh, a well-known Hollywood film company approached me about writing a book about a major figure, and they optioned the book before I've even written it, which is unheard of. Oh, my. But And so they have optioned a, a book by me on a major, major NBA figure. And I'm not at liberty to say who's done that for me, but these people have so much power this this um, will probably be a scripted docu-series. This will be made. Although with the cancellation of winning time, who knows where, where all of this is headed. But these are powerful people with big plans. Okay, is it something like the ep the epic Michael Jordan series, that 10-parter, which was absolutely epochal? Is it in that same vein? Are we talking about well, that? Well, it, it will be scripted. In other words, it will be like a, uh, 
um, of uh, uh, a Netflix or HBO series Ooh. with actors. Ooh, okay. It's in the scripted universe. It's not a documentary, but it will be a series. Okay. Apparently. When do you think it will come out? Because I'd love to have you on again where we could talk about this, where you can promote it. Do you have any ideas as to timing? You know, I'm still sort of... Okay. They uh, first approached me in January. The negotiations have gone on for a while, but I've been working and doing interviews on it. The papers are all signed. Everything's wrapped up now. Okay. I think it's probably going to take a couple of years at the very least. Okay. Please keep me posted. I'd love to have, I want you on again where you can, you can promote this to your heart's content, okay? <laughs> I, Matt, I really appreciate it. But most of all, I appreciate the great conversations and the great questions and interest. You have helped me explain more. I've spent five years of my life on this project. And the way you uh, sent me the questions and organized this show, you really helped me explain the book. I can't thank you enough for all you've done just in getting me ready. I have to now begin promoting this book for an October 24th release here in a month and this show has helped me tremendously and i'm not saying that lightly thank you very much roland that means a great deal to me i it's you don't know how enormous an honor it is to have someone with your magnificent record in sports literature appear on my show it is a great thrill and a magnificent I'm just honor another hack making circuit i'm not I'm not doing anything like that. I'm just a guy who loves basketball. and uh, well, that, You know, I got to know some great people like Tex Winter. Tex Winter changed my life. Yeah. But that's, uh, that doesn't make me more than what I've always been. Roland, you're too modest. Let me tell you a quick little story. Um, I, liked, I have a cousin of mine. Uh, she's a school teacher. She teaches fifth graders at a church school in Maryland. And a couple years ago, I always, every February, I drive down and talk to her kids and all that about you know the presidents and all that and I tell them about my background and I told them about hey do you how many of you bought the book in Michael Jordan the life or showboat about Kobe Bryant and all most of those kids had their hands up and I told them you know I interviewed the author of that and those kids their jaws dropped the fact that I had you on my show and interviewed you I mean they were they were flubungeant when, when they, that's how much they love your books, okay? All those hands well, were up, well, those kids. I, I will go back to my comment about the great warrior culture yep. and how Jordan and Kobe have become yep. emblematic of warriors. And I assure you, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm an old, old guy. I'm not, those guys have, have brought that attention to things. It is, uh, yeah. but it is fun to see and it. It's it's about time. Yes. Rowan, may God bless and keep you and your family always. You too, Matt. Thank you so much. Very welcome. You take care. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show where I will be interviewing football author Bill Johnson. Thank you and good night.